0: Hi there, my name's Ushin Lunny and welcome to Audio Talks presented to you by Harman. And in this episode, we're celebrating dance music, club culture and DJ history. From resolutely underground beginnings, dance music has exploded into the mainstream over the past few decades, But what were the roots of dance music culture, what were some of the milestones in its global growth and who were the maestros behind the movement? I am thrilled to be joined by two people who are keeping the faith for dance music culture and DJ history. Bill Brewster is a writer, music historian, co-author of the definitive book Last Night A DJ Saved My Life and a world-renowned DJ. As the iconic Jockey Slut magazine said, what Bill Brewster doesn't know about disc jockeying is probably not worth knowing. Welcome, Bill. Hi there. Good to be here. Great to have you here, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us. And joining us from our house, the Museum of Club Culture in Amsterdam, is Arne van Terpoven. Arne is a prolific author, a dance music publicist, and owner of the very hip Merry-Go-Wild record shop in the centre of Amsterdam. Welcome, Arne. Nice one. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, so it's probably an impossible question to choose your favourite ever night in a club. But I'd love to know, is there one particular clubbing experience that you kind of go back to again and again in your memory and smile? And we'll start with yourself, Bill.
1: Uh, probably the first time that I went to the Sound Factory in New York in 1991. Amazing. It was the first time I'd ever been to New York. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been to the Sound Factory. It's the first time I'd ever seen Junior Vasquez DJ I was staying with a friend who lived in Little Italy. And yeah, it kind of blew my mind really being in a club like that. It was a, an incredible experience. And then about two or three years later, I moved over to New York and was a regular there every every Saturday night.
0: Wow, that's really some hastian days right there. Amazing choice. Thank you, Bill. I do realize that both of you have a lot of moments to choose from. Uh, so we'll come over to yourself, Arda. What's a clubbing memory that really just makes you happy that you were there?
2: I started proper partying and raving in this century, in 2001. For the whole 90s, I had no clue of good (laughs) DJ parties and such. Yeah. So, as a journalist, I obviously researched a lot about the old days. Yeah. Let's say like 88, 93. And whatever scene doesn't matter, they always say two things. The first thing is people were really, really dancing with proper moves. Mm. And the second thing is all sorts of different people blended in with each other on the dance floor, like the lawyer uh, next to the truck driver and the transgender uh, next to an artist. Totally different people, but it worked on the dance floor. These were two things that I, I picked up in every interview. Then in 2010, I went to the Berghain in uh, Berlin and I went there on Monday at 10 o'clock in the morning with my girlfriend. And we were sober. We had a proper night. It was uh, second Easter day. And um, we wanted to be there for the whole day. We entered it at 10 o'clock in the morning. I walked upstairs. And one of my favorite records was playing. Uh, Ray by Ame from Berlin. Yeah. And before I knew it, I was on this dance floor. And I got totally lifted by the atmosphere there. So, I mean, I'm just a white country boy from the Netherlands. I can <laughs> dance. I don't have proper moves. But before <laughs> I knew it, I was like dancing way, way wilder than I was used by myself. Um, And that was because of the energy in the room. And then suddenly next to me uh, was a guy who was completely naked. He only had some (laughs) leather straps um, around his chest. And we had this like this dance floor moment that everybody knows when you look at each other and you're like, yes, we don't know each other. We don't speak, but we are together in this moment. Absolutely. I had goosebumps all over my body I was wow. in there for five minutes and then I realized, okay, this maybe touches the thing they mean in the interviews from the old days because I am yeah. way wilder than I'm used to for myself and I'm totally connected to a guy I would never see in my regular life and that gave me goosebumps all over.
0: Oh yeah, that moment of dance floor unity is really precious, you know. And The great Andrew Wetherill spoke about it as almost this kind of Gnostic ritual with strobe lights and repetitive beats in a a dark space. And I don't think he's far wrong, to be honest. You know, we get those moments of transcendence when we go into those spaces.
2: Totally. And you still can find your place with a lot of different people. But my experience is for the last 10 years, most of the dance floors are picked by more or less the same people, by genre or by age or whatever. So yeah, this proper mixing was, was really good.
0: Oh, fantastic. I'm going to throw my own little moment from uh, more recent times. I went over to Talon Music Week a little while ago and went to this techno warehouse there called Hall in uh, Tallinn, Estonia, and it was a sticker on your smartphone as you walk in. No selfies, all about the music, dancing all night long. It was absolutely sublime, and it was one of those moments of dance floor unity, uh, exactly like you're both talking about there. So we are going to have a tour of our house, a virtual tour of our house in Amsterdam. But before we get to that, I thought it would be fun to set the scene from the preeminent dance music historian, Bill. How has dance music taken over the world?
1: (laughs) Okay, you're trying to you're trying to condense uh, the contents of a two hundred and fifty thousand word book in a in a one minute answer. <laughs> Thanks for that.
0: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Okay, well, I, I mean, if if you wanted to pick one moment that really defines the whole history of dance music, it would be the beginning of disco in New York because it's pretty much the motherlode of everything that came after. Yeah, uh, it was the birth of the modern DJ. It was the birth of the stereo sound system. It was the birth of the 12-inch single. It was the birth of a nightclub as we know it now with the sound and the records and the DJ and the atmosphere and the people. So I think you could do worse than start in the late 60s, early 70s at clubs like The Loft and The Gallery and revisit those. And they really did set the template for what we do now And there's very little that we do now that wasn't available and wasn't happening then. So I think for me, that's where everything started. There were things before that, of course. There were, there were DJs playing interesting music. There was some sound systems. But that's really where everything came together. And you could say, this is the template for what we do now.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you go into this in amazing forensic detail with real passion in your book last night at DJ saved My Life. So how did you kind of go about researching that book? Was that kind of the story of your own journey through dance music? Or did you have to put on your research hat a lot and kind of do a lot of digging to uncover some of the folks that you spoke to in the book?
1: I think we had to remove ourselves from the story in a lot of ways. I mean, it was certainly our experiences. Frank is from Lincolnshire, the same as me, Uh, but we actually met in New York. We were both living in New York. So the initial idea for the book that we were going to write was to write about disco and start with Stonewall and end with AIDS. But uh, when we were talking to the publisher who was interested, he said, why don't you just write about the history of the DJ? And it brought a lot of the things that we'd been thinking about into focus and it gave us a proper structure. But obviously, the thing that we really wanted to do uh, with the book, among many other things, was to kind of reset disco as a spiritual, important, revolutionary, influential musical movement. Because before we wrote that book, it was still seen as kind of polyester pants, cheesy dance moves, and generally a bit crap. And we wanted to kind of re-establish it at the forefront of musical innovation because that's where we felt it belonged. So one of the things we were fairly obsessed with when we were writing the book was to kind of replace disco at the center of musical culture. And then along the way, there were other stories that came up. I mean, the joy of doing a book like that, which was largely put together from first-person interviews, is that every time we talked to someone, they said, well, I did this, but there's this person over here who was there before me and you should talk to him or her as well. So that's kind of how we ended up going further and further back and interviewing DJs from the 1950s and so on. So... But yeah, I would say if, if there was one central part of the book, it was to kind of really reestablish disco at the heart of music culture generally, but in specifically dance music culture in particular.
0: Oh, fantastic. It was uh, wonderful to see that book and to see disco being celebrated and venerated in that way. And, you know, we had the Disco Sucks movement back in the 70s. People were burning vinyl records in football stadiums. It was kind of a bit nuts, but the spiritual, the cultural value of dance music culture, of disco is uh, incalculable, particularly when you look back now and uh, your book really captures those moments and where it all led to. Um, So you mentioned there The Loft as being one of the kind of seminal clubs and of course David Mancuso was one of the definitive DJs who really kind of set the scene for a lot of what happened subsequently. And I saw recently Colleen Cosmodelica Murphy who's a wonderful DJ and remixer herself she mentioned he used very good equipment to really bring out the musical experience he had like Mark Levison amplifiers and all this great equipment could you talk a bit about the role of the sound system and high quality audio in club culture do you think it affects the emotional experience that the clubbers have and and what's that kind of relationship
1: Yeah, I think it does. I mean, that's not to say that you can't have a party with fairly crap sound systems because I've (laughs) played on hundreds of crap sound systems. But certainly when you're playing in a really good club with really good engineers and really good equipment, it does make a difference. It makes your job so much more easy. You know, I was a resident DJ at Fabric for six years and they had a a sound engineer for every room. So if there was anything not quite working... They would tweak it as you were playing and just having that kind of attention to detail makes such a huge difference. It it enables you to play more difficult records and make them work still. Mm -hmm. You know, there there were records that I played at Fabric that I really couldn't often play anywhere else because they just did not work in other environments and it was because the sound system had such clarity that it made that difference. It brought out the subtleties in music. You would hear things that you'd never heard before on a record, and yeah. so yeah, it, sound is hugely important. And as you mentioned, David Mancuso is really the godfather of of that kind of aesthetic, yeah. and the work that he did with uh, Alex Rosner, who built the sound system at the Loft. Wow. And also, Alex Rosner is an interesting character in his own right. He was he was part of Schindler's List. He was a, one of the children that was saved by Schindler's List and transported over to, to the US. Wow. And um, he also uh, installed sound systems in many, many churches and chapels in and around the New York uh, area and used to joke about uh, the loft and the gallery also being churches of a different kind. And you can see his point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. The famous song says God is the DJ. I mean, that's taken it to its ultimate conclusion. But, you know, certainly the dance floor is a space where one can have a collective, a kind of religious experience that, that lifts the spirit and really transform how we see the world and how we feel about things. So I think it has immense value. And I think our friend there who built the sound systems could be very, very close to the truth. Now, I saw producer and DJ mixmaster Morris recently post a photo of this huge cabinet from a sound system. And I think he tagged it ultimate JBLs. So there was these massive speaker cabinets. And, you know, he's a wonderful producer. He's doing great work on Colcutt's new label. Do you think that the best producers have a direct affinity with the sound of the dance floor to make music that works out there? I mean, are there any examples that you would give of great producers who really understand how sound works on a dance floor and that really shines through in their music?
1: The one that stands out for me is Emperor Machine because he's been producing music for over 30 years, firstly as Bizarre Inc. and then as Chicken Lips and then under a variety of pseudonyms since then. But what I like about what he does uh, is he uses often quite minimal amounts of equipment but uses them very well and explores the sonic possibilities of those four or five components to really make them work to maximum effect on a, on a dance floor. I mean, I, I love the sound that he has anyway. It's very sparse and, and actually it's a real art in dance music to make compelling music that doesn't have much in the way of content. Yeah. When, when you hear people do it, it sounds so easy and yet it's actually so hard to achieve. Having spent many hours in studio trying to reduce the amount of flotsam that I've thrown onto a track... <laughs> Um, I know how hard it is to get rid of things because suddenly you think "Mm, this sounds boring now Um, but he's got that knack of being able to produce records that don't have too much on them but somehow are, are, are endlessly interesting
0: yeah indeed those Chicken Lips releases are some of my favorite. so many bangers just brilliant
1: And you,
0: of course, co-founded DJHistory.com. You co-authored one of the most important books on dance music and DJ culture history ever, Last Night at DJ Saved My Life. You were there at the time. You saw the explosive growth of dance music. You were part of it as a DJ. Uh, You travelled the world. Did you see a tendency not to record things historically that you wanted to remedy?
1: Both Frank and I were kind of really annoyed with um, how musical culture was told through the stories of white middle-class men, generally Um, people who did English at Oxford and Cambridge, who became music critics and wrote endlessly about Bob Dylan. I have nothing against Bob Dylan. He's obviously a really talented guy, but it just felt to me like dance music was almost the music of outsiders and outcasts and, you know, the Latin community, the gay community, the black community, working class kids in England. And so because of that, it never got documented in a way that we felt it deserved. And we wanted to write books that tried to set a new standard, I suppose, and and say, well, actually, this stuff is just as important. Dancing on a dance floor in a communal space is just as important as listening to The Beatles. I love The Beatles. Um, I'm a big fan of The Beatles. But there's space in the world of music books for books about dance music and and DJs and um, record producers and dance producers. So, and, and, you know, over the last 20 years, there's many, many books have come out subsequently that shows actually there is a huge market for these books. You know, I, I don't see us as competitors when I see other people writing about the subject because the more people that write, about dance music, the more of a, the more of a niche you create in the marketplace, I think, for for what you do. Um, uh, so, yeah, we, we kind of wanted to redress the balance a little bit when we wrote that book. We were kind of on a mission for sure um, to sort of say, well, actually, this music is as important as the Beatles or Bob Dylan.
0: I love it. Absolutely. I, I would tend to agree with you there 100%. Now that leads us very beautifully on like a effortlessly crossfaded mix between two 12 inch vinyl records to Arna, because you are also a prolific author, a published author. You help a lot of folks who are writing about dance music release books into the market. Did you see a gap in stuff being recorded and honored in the right way? And you know, what really got you into the publishing side of things Arna?
2: I also think this is a matter of time passing by. Well, I really, um, I mean, I recognize a lot in Bill's uh, story, even more if you go way back to uh, disco, but if you see like house music as a starting point or a little bit later, you always need like 20, 25, 30 years when you see history unfold itself. You see what is an influence on what. Yes. And you see what was really important. And also very important, if a couple of decades have passed, all stories can be told. There are mm-hmm. no secrets anymore. Everything yeah. is from the way past. Yeah. So that's one thing. The second thing is that the dance scene obviously is very progressive. New sounds, new technology. It was a complete revolution at the end of the 80s. Uh, if I speak about the house music, the establishment, yeah. the, the system, your, your, your parents, the authorities, nobody uh, understood it. Um, and um, it was always going forward, forward, forward. So first is a revolution then it gets common, then it gets mainstream, and then when two or three generations uh, have passed, there's an element of nostalgia. Mm. And that is the moment um, when people want to read books. And it's always the same thing. First come the books, then come the movies, then come the documentaries, then come the drama movies, and then like um, here in the Netherlands and also what's happening in, uh, in Germany this summer, then the even proper uh, museum pop-up. So yeah. I think electronic music, as we know it, is w- the last true musical revolution. Hip-hop is older, rock and roll is older, punk is older, everything is older. Hmm. It just needed a little bit of time. The second thing is writing on dance music is really, really, really hard. Way harder than on organic music because the storytelling is different. Dance music is functional. Uh, the producing of dance music goes most of the time by one or two people in a room with uh, equipment and with uh, computers. And that is a way other dynamic than an organic songwriter uh, who goes to his band or her band and they try to make music together. So the storytelling is uh, less obvious. You have to really, really dig in. Mm. And the craft of like social cultural analysis It's very, very, very hard. So it's way easier to write about the career of a rock band than the meaning of an electronic music record or an event. It's a hard craft. And for me, I don't have that craft. The thing I like is to see the lines of influence in the cultural. I think the cultural aspects for me personally are more interesting than the music. This brings us all very nicely onto
0: the incredible House project, which you're very much involved in over there in Amsterdam. Um, Talk to us a bit about the genesis of the idea. Uh, You know, explain to our listeners, maybe if they haven't been there, you know, what it is, why it was launched and how it all came together.
2: The dance scene is ready for this now. Yes. It has been a revolution. It has been very new and it still is very progressive, but we're also at a moment in time where we can uh, look back. And preserve and make it accessible for like new generations who want to learn. If you're 18 years old and you do the same route like me, you move to a big city from the countryside and you get thrown in this new scene. I mean, that is life changing and we facilitate on a very um, easy accessible uh, way to learn about what it is uh, and how it became like this. Like it goes with good and relevant ideas. There were three parties with the same idea uh, of a museum slash experience about electronic music culture. And instead of competing uh, each other, they partnered up. And that is the core of our uh, team. Uh, most of them come from either hospitality or dance events. The core of our team did events like uh, Sensation and Tomorrowland wow. and Mysteryland. Uh, they were from uh, id and they went their own way after the whole um, SFX takeover. Yes. And a couple of things were actually really clear. One of them was this has to be in a club. Yes. Because clubs, club spaces are very big. or Most of the time they are in the city center, especially old clubs. They are very uh, easy to reach like for a lot of people by public transport. But for 80, 85% of the time, they are empty. Mm. which is not sustainable time-wise and is also not sustainable uh, economically. So we thought this has to be in a club building and that will be like experience in daytime and club during nighttime. And um, we found a location right in the city center in Amsterdam in the space of Notorious Club If, The one opened in 1989 and it was together with the club uh, Roxy. Those were the two most important clubs at that time in Amsterdam. Very important to make house music more popular and accessible. So it's holy ground. Yeah. So we reached out to the club that is in there right now, Club Air. And um, they thought it was a good idea um, right away. And after that, we had a lot of green lights. So we started building in, I think, March last year. And we opened in November. And one of our very clear ideas, it, it has to be a progressive museum as well. So you're not gonna stare at a picture in a frame, but you have to experience the music, the, the volume, and uh, uh, what it's like to be on the dance floor. So we like to tell it as uh, festival psychology. So you come into the room, you start with the show all together, then you can walk around and do whatever you like. You can watch a documentary about history, you can look at like, physical items like uh, drum computers or do uh, the helmets of Daft Punk. Or you can uh, make music by yourself or mix a record by yourself. So I have nothing with like, the equipment side of this thing. I never mix the record. I never touch the button of a drum computer. <laughs> never. I like the cultural thing. So I would go to a documentary. But you see a lot of people, they jump into the, the drum computers. It's very, very um, accessible. It's for people who are really into it and want to learn more. But it's also for people like my mother, who still says to me, after all these years, what are, what are these guys doing? And how do they make this music? And this is, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is computer music. Um, you know all these, all these sentences. You we, We've heard it over and over again. So I can take her as well. And actually next Sunday, I'm going with the kid of a friend of mine. She has to talk about history of techno at school. Wow. It's for a very broad audience. And then after you spent a small hour doing your own thing. There is a signal. You have to go to the dance floor again, and then there is a, what we call the culture ride. It's a 15 minute mind blowing audio visual uh, spectacle that takes you from mid 80s till now. Wow! That's it. I'm not going to spoil more, <laughs> but it's okay. um, yeah. This is really uh, this is really nice.
0: So Arno, what's coming up at our house? Are there any big dates that our listeners should be aware of? You know, we're going to be booking our tickets to Amsterdam to come and visit you, but when should they be coming over?
2: We obviously uh, got hit by COVID very, very hard. So we um, took the opportunity to improve uh, some things and we come up with our second grand opening at the end of May.
0: Okay, that's absolutely awesome. End of May in Amsterdam. We'll see you down the front. So Arna, this is a living, breathing, proper nightclub. It's a living museum. It's got a sound system. You've got club nights there. How is the Our House Endeavor welcoming DJs and equipment companies and folks in the ecosystem to get involved? Have you had any interesting collaborations when you've been putting this all together?
2: Well, the whole thing is actually built on collaborations. I mean, the dance scene obviously got big business yeah. <laughs> and big business is hard everywhere. But uh, we got our helicopter view so we can get away from that. So we can pick all the best from everybody. Um, for instance, we have a documentary running that gives you a masterclass in 12 minutes. And that was made together with Kevin Sanderson, Carl Cox, Diplo, wow. Armin van Buuren and Charlotte de Witte. Generation on generation, all sorts of genres. There is music made, for the museum by Junkie XL. We have oh. a lot of photographers involved, uh, like Peter J. Walsh, uh, who has a great Hacienda archive. Steve Eichner from America, who has a great archive from the Limelight. We have Cleo Campert. He uh, just released a book about Roxy in um, Amsterdam. We have oh. Rutger Geerling, that is a Dutch star as well. But then in mm-hmm. photography, he yeah. has a DJ live, but then with, with his camera and not with uh, records, uh, flying around the world. And then obviously we got all the bigger and smaller uh, parties from Ultra and EDC and Awakenings to Sonar, to Mayday, to Melt, to Boom, to Tip. Obviously, we can satisfy everybody. Uh, there's always this tension between underground and commercial. But our mindset from the start was everybody has to see that at least we know. At least mm. we know all sides of this.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like there's never a dull moment there. And uh, I believe there might be a JBL logo or two around our house as well, which I will be looking out for when I come over myself. Now, Bill, we've just heard about some of the exciting stuff that's been happening and will be happening over at our house. But what's coming up in your house?
1: Um, well, Frank and myself have just written a new edition of Last Night at DJ Save My Life. And we have a new publisher, White Rabbit, in London. Amazing! So the new edition is coming out. English edition is coming out in the beginning of July this year. So that's the first time it's been available in the UK for quite a long time. It's been out of print. So we're really happy about that. I'm um, really happy with the new publisher. Frank and I are in the middle of relaunching DJ History as well. We're kind of building the site at the moment. So that's going to go live, hopefully to coincide with the, the book publication. And then on top of that, I'm DJing regularly. And Frank and I do parties under the name Low Life. We've got one coming up in Margate in June. And then we've got another one at Corsica Studios at the end of October. And then various guest slots at, festivals and you know the usual kind of stuff i'm playing at a number of festivals over the summer so yeah i'm, I'm kind of trying to keep busy
0: fantastic well, I'm, I'm so happy to hear about the return of dj history and uh, congratulations on the move to white rabbit they are possibly my favorite book publisher of all time everything they release is worth checking out and uh, we will absolutely put a a link to White Rabbit in the show notes there so folks can look out for Last Night at DJ Saved My Life, the new edition. That's very, very exciting news. Um, Now, as you've both been saying, you know, the pandemic and the lockdowns really did decimate the clubbing sector. It was a lot of bad luck for folks who were running nightclubs. What do you think is the role of what you're both doing as authors, as historians, and what's the role of alternative spaces like our house to keep the spirit of club culture alive when stuff happens like lockdowns and pandemics? You know how important is dance music history to keeping dance music alive?
2: Well, it's, it's obviously. I'd like to think that what I do is f- from some sort of importance, but it obviously never can substitute the real thing, never. And yeah. um, I think a good thing of the pandemic is that we realized that the culture is more than just drinking and taking drugs and be somewhere on a on a dance floor and then go home and everything is the same. It stands for a lot of creativity, it stands for releasing, it stands for connecting, it stands for mental health. I think we, I think we, make, we really made some steps in the perception of this, but yeah. obviously we cannot do without the real thing. Never. We are, what I'm doing is observating, it's in the sideline and it has some sort of importance, but I mean, it could never only exist with things like that. We are adjusting things on the sideline.
1: Yeah, just to echo a lot of what Anna's said already. I mean, I, I think the thing that we all really learned in during the pandemic was just how important the kind of community aspect of dance music is, of coming together and socializing with people. And, you know, humans generally are very social beings and being forced to not socialize for long periods of time was actually incredibly difficult. And I know lots of people who struggled with that. I mean, I, I used to DJ in my living room every Saturday night in the absence of having anything better to do, to be honest, and people would gather and somehow try and create a similar online community to, to a dancer. It's clearly not the same thing, but it was better than nothing. But it, it just really brought home to me how important those spaces are in terms of coming together, forming communities and just... Interacting with other human beings, it's such a fundamental part of being human, I think. And, and missing that was, it was, it was such a loss. And to be able to go back and do that again felt like such an enormous relief. And certainly, you would never take any of those privileges for granted again.
0: Yeah, yeah, well said. It does put it all in perspective. So we are approaching International Dance Day coming up on April the 29th. And of course, we're looking back, we're celebrating dance music and DJ history and dance music culture. But let's look forward as well. What inspires you both about the next generation of DJs, producers, clubbers and promoters? What what have you seen that gives you hope for the next few decades of club culture? And we'll start with yourself, Bill.
1: I would say the rise of uh, women being involved in DJ booths. I've started mentoring a a young woman over here, DJ Yida, and working with other young women. And, you know, over the last five years, it's changed enormously. Uh, You know, when we wrote the first edition of Last Night of DJ Saved My Life, women were fairly absent from that book because it was such a male-dominated arena. I mean, in some cases... That was kind of understandable if you're talking about documenting gay men's clubs, for example. There yeah. are obviously not going to be many women around. But just generally, I think it was a bit of a boys club. You know, you look at the early days of Acid House or whatever, and there were very few. There were women, but very few.
2: Yeah. And
1: the boys seemed to like it that way. And I like the way that women have just forced themselves into the reckoning over the last five years. And I think that clubs now are getting increasing pressure to... 50/50 lineups, and certainly it's something that we've failed to do at Low Life until very recently. So we've started making sure that 50% of all our lineups feature women, and and actually it's it's made a big difference to our audience as well. We've got a younger, really vibrant audience. So I think it actually it will benefit clubs if they do it. I, d- I genuinely think it's going to make crowds better, the audience is better and more receptive, and just it's something that I'm excited about.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. So many of my favourite dance records and DJs these days are uh, women. You know, folks like Anfisa Let You Go are just like releasing some bangers. There's so much innovation happening there and uh, an increased diversity can only be a good thing for the scene, for the audience, for the clubs and uh, for the sustainability of the ecosystem as a whole. And uh, Arnold, coming over to yourself, what inspires you about what's happening in the scene? What gives you hope for the future?
2: I think it's interesting to mention here that we thought here in, in the Netherlands that after the pandemic, things would explode. We were talking about a third summer of love all the time. But um, the thing is that it's not happening. A lot of promoters and a lot of clubs and a lot of festivals are struggling. It seems that it actually, it did got out of our system a, a bit. Maybe yeah. some people are still a bit of afraid. People from 18 to 20 have never done this. Maybe they—I uh, mean, 18 is the age for clubbing here in the Netherlands. Uh, and 18 till 20 have never been to a club. Yeah. So we thought this is gonna be like the, the like euphorical, and everything will be will be sold out, and people will be will be hugging each other all day. But it's actually not the case. Um, and I'm—it's yeah. really interesting how this will uh, evolve. Second thing is, um, what really did inspire me, um, I have a, a record shop in Amsterdam and that is run by a couple of young people. I'm 40 years myself. They are all under, under 30 and they are totally into this and they did find their way. They threw some parties themselves. They did uh, things, uh, they did proper DJ sets at home. They went to illegal raves. I mean, the party will never end. Uh, young people will find their way and they will shape it a way that is correct for them. And if that means that some old things are gone, are over, that's only bad for old people. (laughs) It will find their way, but uh, it has two sides right here. Like all conversations about the future and about getting out of two years of uh, COVID are very like, uh, how do you say it, jewel? They have two sides. Yeah. But obviously, I mean, music will go its way. And uh, people uh, will party and people uh, will get their uh, release. And um, the ecosystem here in the Netherlands uh, obviously is great. So people will get their opportunities and um, otherwise make their own opportunities.
0: Yeah, well said. I mean, as two dance music historians, I'm sure you would agree that the only thing you can be sure of is change and uh, change is is what's happening all the time. But I'm very grateful to both of you for capturing the path of the change and the historic milestones in the scene and really giving it you know, it, the respect that it so deserves. And I think that's so important for the scene moving forward, surviving and thriving and changing with the new demographics. And, uh, you know, all of this is just making me very happy and very hopeful for the future of dance music and club culture. Um, so I have a very important final question. We invite all of our VIP guests to add a track to our title playlist. And as we're talking about club culture, I'm inviting you both to choose a record or some records, uh, plural, that were pivotal in igniting your passion for all things dance music and DJ culture. And we'll start with
2: yourself, Arna. <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is uh, something, uh, this is a, qu- a question I get, I get a lot and it's yeah. very hard. And obviously the answer changes every hour. Uh, <laughs> yes. You recognize it. But I think uh, we just shaped um, the Our House Museum. So we had to make a selection of records that come yeah. back in the museum. Well, that obviously is the most shitty job you can think about. <laughs> we got crazy of all the choices and our heart was broken all the time, but you have to make some yeah. choices. But one of the questions that popped up uh, was what is the ultimate Dutch classic? Wow. And we agreed that was Plastic Dreams by JD. Oh, and um, so this is the record. I mean, this is not the most original answer, but it has to be in the list. And I thought that if you would now throw back at me, it's already in there. Then I got a second (laughs) one, uh, Dutch Craftsmanship, and that is Timeless Altitude by Secret Cinema from 1994.
0: Oh, superb. Well, th- those are both going in the playlist. Those are great, great suggestions. Thank you so much, Arna. And uh, coming over to your good self, Bill, what is a track or some tracks that you'd like to add to our playlist to inspire folks and uh, connect with your experience of falling in love with dance music?
1: Okay, so I've chosen one because I knew Arna was going to be on the show and I wanted to pick a Dutch record that was really huge in New York when I was living in New York. Everyone played this record. And that's 51 Days, Paper Moon, which is a, a huge, it was a huge record for me when Fabric first opened. I used to play it a lot there. And just for me, my favorite house record of all time.
0: I love it. Dutch house music all night long. Let's do it. Um, And I'm going to throw in a a record that I absolutely fell in love with a million years ago, back in the late 80s, which is the uh, original 12-inch version of Orbital Chime, because it just kind of opened my mind to a whole vista of electronic music. And uh, I get the same feeling whenever I listen to it now. So thank you so much for joining us on Audio Talks presented by Harmon Bill Brewster. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much.
2: And Arne van Terpoven. Thank you guys. It was an honor to be in the same online room with Bill. And I hope to see you um, in our house this summer. Yeah, that would be great. Good to talk to you. 100%.
0: Yes, we'll all be down the front for that one. And listeners, don't forget to subscribe, comment and share with your friends and family. If you're enjoying the Audio Talk series of podcasts, why not pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a nice review. It really does mean a lot and it helps new listeners get to know about the amazing VIP guests we talk to in every single episode. So for more exclusive content, some behind the scenes goodies and maybe even some competitions, feel free to connect with us on Instagram. You can find us at Audio Talks Podcast. We'll be back soon for some more fascinating audio talks. See you next time.